Well, let's explore this mine of God's Word a little bit by taking our Bibles and turning them to Mark's Gospel and to chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, we'll continue our look at this wonderful record. Mark chapter 7, we're just going to read a few short verses this morning. Chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. That will be our text for this morning as well. Follow along as I read and let us give heed to this, for this is the word of the living God to us. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a household or a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for this portion of your word. We pray that as we look into it, we pray that you would reveal to us what you have for us here. May your spirit work in us and and instruct us, Father, as we hear it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. And you may be seated. So this morning, as we come to this portion, uh, even though it's kind of in the middle of a chapter, we are coming in some respects to a, a new section of Mark's gospel, of his record of the life and the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth, who is called the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus' entire ministry, as Mark records it, uh, has been spent in a Jewish region known as Galilee with a very brief, in fact, just part of one day stop over on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee in a Gentile area known as the Decapolis, a Greek area um, there very shortly. But everything that we've seen has taken place on and around the Sea of Galilee, there in the the region of Galilee. But as we come to this passage this morning, we see Jesus now leaving that area, leaving Galilee and the area there of of Capernaum and Gennesaret and purposefully making his way into the largely Gentile area of Tyre and Sidon, two cities there. And while it's apparent that Jesus' purpose primarily is to continue his ministry, his ministry uh, to, to Jews, to the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus has another appointment today with a woman from this area who is in very great need. And he will engage her in a very interesting conversation. And, and through his words, he will draw from her a demonstration of her faith which will lead to her receiving a request, and give to us yet another picture of the grace of God 
to all sorts of people. And this episode here in the ministry of Christ begins with, and if you take notes, this will be the first uh, heading that we'll look at. It begins with another failed retreat. Now, whether this was the purpose, a retreat of Jesus and the disciples traveling from where they were to the region of Galilee, uh, to this coastal region or not, we don't know. We're not told how long he was in this area. We do know that he will travel through this area and then up and around through another northern portion uh, up above Israel and then come back down into Galilee. But the only episode that we have while he is here in this region of Tyre and Sidon is the one that we're looking at today. But we are told that when he arrives, the text says here, he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. So it sounds like some of the other things that Jesus has done where they've gone off into a mountain area or gotten away from towns in order to, well, to rest, for Jesus to have a time where he could just uh, be with his disciples and focus on his disciples and teach them, instruct them. Um, So it's possible that that's the reason that, that they are going here, at least outwardly. Another attempt at a time of of rest and instruction. Remember, their last attempt and the one before that and the one before that are interrupted before they really even begin. In fact, in one case, interrupted by the people literally chasing Jesus and his disciples around the Sea of Galilee to get to where they're going, to cut them off and to seek ministry from Jesus. Now, Tyre and Sidon, as it's mentioned here in the text, are two cities right on the the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, just to the the northwest of Israel. And they are part of the Phoenician culture, or the Seraphonician culture, an area that had gone, uh, back in the earlier days of Israel, they had gone from being a strong commercial ally of Israel Uh, You may remember that both David and Solomon had contracted with with them for timber, for various building supplies, and for skilled labor in order to build uh, both their houses and to build the temple of God. They had gone, this area of Phoenicia and Tyre and Sidon had gone from that to being an ally of Assyria and Babylon. And, and becoming a region that was infamous for its idolatry and its sexual immorality. It was an area that was well known for its seafaring uh, businesses that it had and for being great in that kind of trade. They were seafarers. But it was a region that became strongly antagonistic to Israel. In fact, the Jewish historian Josephus called this area and the people from it, notoriously our biggest enemies. It was also the home, though, of a number of what we call Hellenistic Jews, Jews who were in the Greek culture and the Greek society and spoke Greek. And Jesus and the disciples arrive here and, and enter a house. We're not told whose house it was. But as they enter the house, we read that he did not want anyone to know. And as we see, as we read this, that how this goes as well as it usually does. 
And immediately people find out that he is there, and at least one person comes. Verse 24 says, yet he could not be hidden. Jesus doing the things that he has done and the following that has arisen from his ministry makes it so that he is not able to quietly go from place to place and and do anything. But remember, as we think of that and as we think of all of the the interruptions and the, the attempts that don't work out, remember that all of this, every interruption, every detour, every delay, every step is in accordance with that predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God and carried out in perfect conformity and obedience to the will of God the Father by God the Son. There are no accidents here. No missed opportunities. No no difficulties. It's all following that plan, an eternal decree worked out in space and time with the perfect cooperation of second causes of the various kinds, all to the glory of God. And here, as Jesus is unable to find a quiet retreat, he's approached by a woman, a woman with a a great need, which provides a, a place for a fascinating conversation regarding, and this is our second point here, a discussion of children and dogs. And this will take up most of our, our time here together. Uh, children and dogs. Children and dogs very often go together. Um, I saw this this past week where a couple, three children in our congregation got a new dog. And so we're happy for them. <laughs> but this, of course, is the main part of the story. And immediately we read, verse 25, uh, Mark using his well-known, famous, trademark word. Verse 25 says, But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now that might sound familiar. Back earlier in Mark's Gospel, in chapter 5, Jesus came across a man named Jairus. And his daughter was in need of healing. He too came to Jesus and in almost Precisely the same language, we read that he came to Jesus and fell down at his feet and asked him for help. And here, this woman also has a great and desperate need. Her daughter has an unclean spirit, an evil spirit. Matthew, who also records this episode, says that the girl was cruelly demon-possessed. And Mark, as he writes here, writes of this woman coming and a woman, it says, whose little daughter had an unclean spirit. Mark uses an interesting word there that indicates that this girl is, in fact, a young uh, daughter, a little daughter. It's actually the same word that's used in the account of Jairus' daughter that Jesus heals. And in Jairus, the account of Jairus, we read that this girl is 12 years old. And so we might expect that this girl is around this age. Uh, Parents, you might be struggling with various issues with your 12-year-old daughter, but it's very unlikely that you're facing anything like this woman is facing or like this girl is facing. This woman, we're told, has heard of Jesus and has come to him, and we read that she fell down at his feet. She comes... 
if not worshipfully, at least humbly, recognizing Jesus as one to whom she can appeal and whom she might beg for help. But there are more differences to note between Jairus' coming and this woman as she comes to Jesus because of who this woman is. Or we might say what she is. Mark lays them out for us in verse 26, and this certainly enters into the conversation here. First, this woman comes, and, and first she is just that. She is a woman. And, Mark says, she's a Gentile. And, Mark says, that she, is a, she is a Syrophoenician by birth. That means that she is from a notoriously antagonistic nation of Gentiles. So though the daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit, both the daughter and the mother were unclean by virtue of the fact that they were Gentiles. And Matthew, when he writes, he's writing, remember, for a a Jewish audience, he just describes her as saying that she is a Canaanite woman. If you know your Bible, you know the history of Israel with the Canaanites and the struggles that they had with with them. So this clearly puts her in a category that would be antagonistic to the Jews. So this woman comes and right up front, her list of of disqualifications leads to the complications that we're going to read about in this passage. It's interesting, and not accidental, I think, that Mark places this account of this woman right after the account, remember last week, of Jesus teaching on uncleanness and external uncleanness versus internal uncleanness. As one commentator says, of all the people who approach Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, this individual has the most against her from a Jewish perspective. She can claim none of the the credits, if you will, that a good Jew might bring as grounds for him to, to grant her request. This woman brings one thing, two things. She brings a desperate need and she brings a belief that Jesus can help. She had obviously heard of Jesus. We don't know how. It could be that she learned of Jesus from a group, if she was not part of the group, a group from this region who had come down to Galilee because of the fact that they had heard of Christ. In Mark 3, 7, and 8, we read that a great crowd followed Jesus from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. So Jesus' fame had spread that far, and people from there came. It says, when the crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. So this could be how this woman hears about Jesus, but however it is, she comes to him. And she comes, as we do, when we come to Christ, she comes to him without any legitimate claim to his help, but only with, as we do, an appeal to his incalculable grace and mercy. And Mark says that she falls down before the Lord, and verse 26 says she begged 
him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now, so far, these events sound kind of similar to what we've read before. But here now is where things get interesting. And at first glance, and you may have read this before, and, and reacted to this as a bit of a problem. Because we read, let's read verse 26 and on into verse 27. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Oh my. That raises some questions. That reply does, doesn't it? What are we to make of this? Well, first, let's quickly dispel some of the issues that may be in your mind by noting that when we get to the end of the passage, we learn that it was Jesus' intention all along to grant this woman's request. But in his initial response, he gives to her a sort of parable, a very short parable, under the image of a meal. Of course, she hasn't asked for food, but for deliverance for her daughter. But he gives this parable that we read in verse 27. And in his answer here, he speaks of three things. He speaks of children, he speaks of bread, and he speaks of dogs. And as in any parable, the clarity of the story being told, sort of the the physical first-level story, really doesn't need any explanation. That's part of a parable is that it's readily understood. In a meal, there is a priority of place. The children get their food, the family members get their food before any of it goes to the dogs. And in this short little parable in verse 27, these things are representative. The children is a reference to the Jews. The children's bread, well, that's the kingdom of God. It's the the benefits of that kingdom, the blessings of the gospel, the blessings of having the Son of God among them. And the dogs, well, that's a reference to the Gentiles. And this seems, as we read it, to be honest, a little harsh, maybe even offensive. In fact, to see just how offensive this might be, we have to look a little more at that, particularly that last reference, the dogs, which is the woman in, or the, the, the category that this woman would fit into. In Jewish society, in the ancient Near East, the worst, one of the worst insults that you could throw at someone was to call them a dog. Now today, we don't think of dogs as a a bad thing in and of themselves. In fact, in the United States, somewhere around 48 million American households owns at least one dog. The fortunate ones own more than one. Dogs are wonderful, if you didn't know. Dogs are loyal companions. They're expensive. I looked it up. One source says that the average pet owner spends $1,300 a year on their pet. Um, now, I have heard that there is also such a thing known as a cat person, but I don't know if I believe that well, except for the fact that I'm married to one. So I guess I do believe that they exist. Anyway, dogs are for us mostly a welcome addition a very positive part of our families. Right, Haley? (laughs) 
Not so much so in other parts of the world, though, and not so much in the ancient Near East, especially to the Jews, who, as we've seen, have a a very strong focus on cleanness and uncleanness and the things that make things clean and unclean. Dogs in Jewish society were not usually kept as pets, but the dogs that existed in that society were usually wild or half-wild dogs, wild animals that would roam in packs and would, they would eat garbage, they would eat dead animals, they're even known to eat corpses, um, as they did to one of the former residents of this area back in the Old Testament, a woman named Jezebel, who after her demise was dealt with by the dogs. They were the filthiest animals in town, dogs were. I even remember Cindy and I were down in Mexico many, many years ago at a a mission down there, and as we went through this poor town, we saw the packs of dogs uh, running around that obviously belonged to no one and, and looked dangerous, not like the ones that we have in our homes. So the word was used as an extreme insult. And so if Jesus is calling this woman a dog... He is not being very kind. He's really being insulting to her. So the, a primary question of our exegesis, and exegesis is pulling out of Scripture what it says, our examination of the passage, is the question of, is he calling her that? Well, the answer to that, if you read it, is no. Jesus is not referring to her as a dog. He is using the way that Jews would speak to give to her this illustration. And furthermore, as again we see at the end of the passage, he's not refusing to help her. So then what is he doing? As I mentioned, he's using a parable. He's using a figure of speech to explain his mission, to explain sort of her place within the mission of Christ, his mission, and it's to test this woman's faith A test, by the way, that she passes with flying colors. So what is the issue of priority here that I've mentioned? Okay, put on your thinking caps here. Follow me. I want to introduce you to a concept in Scripture and of our understanding of Scripture uh, that you may be familiar with and you may not, but it helps us to see how God works in the world, and it helps us to understand the Bible. The concept is what we call redemptive history, or the history of redemption. And the history of redemption is an understanding of how God, throughout the history of the world, moves history along, moves his revelation of himself and the salvation, the redemption of people along toward the goal that he has established, gradually unfolding his plan from Genesis to the Gospels to Revelation. And he has a plan. God in eternity past, before the creation of the world, has established his plan, which we call his decree. His decree is his eternal purpose, According to the counsel of his will, 
whereby for his own glory he has foreordained everything that comes to pass. And the goal of that decree is to bring glory to himself through the creation of the world and the salvation of sinners and the redemption of all things in Christ. And the Bible is the record of all of that. The Bible is the record of that unfolding, this purposeful march of history through creation and the fall and the redemption of people that he has set his love on and determined to redeem through the sending of his son Jesus who would do all that was needed in order to deal with the sinfulness of man and to provide that righteousness that God requires of men to be accepted by him. And according to God's plan, his decree, he started by focusing on a particular group of people. Not anything special in themselves. In fact, he goes out of the way to say it's not because of them but a people that God chose to be his people. And those people are the Jews, Israel, the Jewish nation, the children of Israel. And in the Old Testament, the knowledge of God, the blessing of God, was limited largely to them. The place where, out of all the places in the world, God chose to manifest himself and to place his special presence was the nation and among the people of Israel. But God's plan was that Israel would not only be a special people with whom God had entered into a special covenantal relationship, but they were to be a light to the surrounding nations and to show forth the glory and the mercy of God. The promise to Abraham was that through his offspring that all the nations of the world would be blessed. And eventually, in God's plan, because God's people rejected uh, him, the riches of the grace of God would be revealed to. And again, this is all part of God's plan, his decree. The riches of the grace of God would be revealed to and opened up to all the nations of the world so that God would have for himself a people out of every tribe and people and language and nation. But this all unfolds gradually. I mean, it takes the whole of this book to unfold it. As I say, he started with one nation, but actually before that, with one man. A man himself, a pagan, an idolater. When he was called by God, he was a pagan man called Abraham, Abram when he was called, then his son Isaac, then his son Jacob, then Jacob's 12 sons, and their descendants were chosen by God to be God's people. As this continues to unfold, as God's working his history of redemption, then after becoming enslaved to the nation of Egypt and after crying out to God and his hearing and answering and bringing them out from there with a mighty hand, he brought them to Mount Sinai where he gave them his law, where he constitutes them as a people. Then he guided them and watched them and protected them as they went through the desert. He brought them to the land that he had promised Abraham that he would bring them to. He gave them the land of Israel where they became a great nation. Then through the prophets and the the judges and then the kings 
from David the greatest through Solomon after him. Then when the nation fell into disobedience, it split into two. One of which was disobedient and destroyed and dispersed. The other, the faithful nation, still sinful, was taken into exile by the Babylonians and then allowed later to return. All along, through all of this, God is unfolding his plan through judges and prophets and priests and kings, through ceremonies and sacrifices, prefiguring that ultimate redemption that would come through the Son of God, the servant of God, the Messiah, His Son, Jesus Christ, who would come. Focusing in the Old Testament on Israel, God giving to His children their bread, feeding them from Himself and from His grace. And so the children of God were fed first, The Israelites were fed first, but always God was with his people, always faithful to his covenant, even when they were not faithful, which was most of the time. And so it was with the ministry of Jesus as he comes on the scene. He was sent in the continuation of that pattern. He was sent, as he himself said, to the sheep, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And this is still repeated in the early days of the apostle. Peter spoke to the Jews of his day and said, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And of course, when Paul the apostle speaks of the gospel, that great power of God unto salvation, he says it was to the Jews first. That's the pattern. It has been, and it is here in the first century. But notice what Paul says there in in, uh, Romans. He says that it is to the Jew first, not only. Of course, he finishes that sentence by saying, and also to the Greeks, to the Gentiles. And this has also been the case all along. In the midst of God revealing himself in, to, among his people, Israel, in the past, there were always, in the Old Testament, there were always hints There were always these situations, glimmerings, foreshocks, if you will, of something bigger, of something broader, of something greater. And that thing uh, that was a, a mystery then, Paul says, was the inclusion of the Gentiles as the people of God. You know, from from Moses' father in law, the Midianite, to the Canaanite prostitute, Rahab, to Naaman the Syrian general, the inhabitants of Nineveh, and of course the Moabite woman, Ruth, who along with Rahab are not only included in the people of God, but are part of the line of the Messiah himself. So God has sovereignly worked where he desires and the way that he desires, even outside of the nation of Israel, though primarily with them, even outside through the word of God. And now the Son of God has come, and he has come to the Jews first. And that is the point of Jesus' statement to this Gentile woman. The priority of Jesus' ministry was to his brothers and sisters, the Jews, first. Though, as we know, the benefits of his redemptive work is offered to all who will believe in him, 
It was to the Jews first that he came. And that's what he's saying here. Although even here, Jesus hints at the inclusion of the Gentiles, at his grace being broader than just to the Jews. And it certainly gives encouragement to this woman here in his very statement when he says, let the children be fed first. Just like what Paul said. And in that statement, we have a hint that he is not rejecting this woman, but he's testing her faith. He's saying this is the way things are going right now. He's testing her persistence. And we'll see it also at the end of the statements that he makes. When he says it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, we talked about dogs a little bit, But the word that Mark uses here and that Matthew uses in his account of this is not the usual word for a dog. But it's a word that literally means a little dog and refers not to a street dog, not to some mangy cur, but to a house dog. It refers to a pet. To a dog that would be in the house. That would not be like those dogs outside. And that is the, let's just say it, the brilliant catch by this woman. Who now, desperate in her need, persistent in her plea, and encouraged in her faith, replies to Jesus with the words of verse 28. By the way, this woman apparently does not take Jesus' words as an offense to her. She's not offended by it. In fact, she, in this response, we see that she recognizes that this is sort of the place of a Gentile coming to her. Verse 28 says, But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And that leads us to our last point this morning, and that is persistence rewarded. Matthew, when he records this, he records it before she comes, as Mark has recorded, and falls down before Jesus, that she came in and was crying out for Jesus to deliver her little girl from this unclean spirit. And Matthew records that Jesus did not answer her a word. He waits. And when the disciples finally come to him, again, this is from Matthew's record, to ask Jesus to send her away, still Jesus doesn't answer her. Although it is important to note that he doesn't send her away. And finally she comes, and as Mark picks up here, she kneels before him. So first he makes her wait, but she persists. The disciples want Jesus to send her away, but she persists. Jesus, even here, points to his specific mention and to the priority of Jesus' mission to the Jews and the historical fact that the Gentiles are not yet fully welcomed into the covenant. And still, she persists. And in her, persistent, in her persistence, she answers wisely. As she asks, not for a meal, she says, I'll take the crumbs. Yes, we... We get the crumbs, but the crumbs are good. The crumbs are glorious. I'll take that. Yes, Lord, she replies. The children are given priority at the table, 
But the dogs, the little dogs, the pet dogs, the dogs under the table, the dogs anticipating the dropping of crumbs and the extra food, they get it. And after he said, she says this, he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way, the demon has left your daughter. I have to add another statement from Matthew. In Matthew, he also records Jesus saying to her, O woman, great is your faith. Great is your faith. Great is your persistence, driven by your faith. And we read that she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. What a crumb. This woman, by the way, is, is like a perfect picture of the woman that Jesus told a parable about elsewhere in Luke 18. Remember the parable of the persistent widow. She was granted her request through her persistence. In fact, the reason given for that parable in Luke 18 is, Luke says, that they, that his people, ought always to pray and not lose heart. That is, it's a parable encouraging persistence. And this morning, we have in our Bibles a short account of a Gentile woman who came to Jesus and persisted in her request. A pagan woman who knew the grace of God and the justice of God and humbly asked and kept asking to receive a great gift from the Lord, even though it was just a crumb. Let us learn from this to be persistent in our prayers. Always to pray and not lose heart, as Luke said. Like Jacob, who wrestled with the Lord and said he would not leave off wrestling with God until he received a blessing. We're a people who, like everything else, we long for and expect immediate gratification an immediate answer. And if our answer to our prayers don't come quickly, we often just give up and go on to something else. And it's so easy for us when we do that to quickly lose heart. Let us not do that. Let us take the example of this Gentile woman who came to Jesus, who persisted in her conversation with Jesus, And instead of leaving off, let us obey the admonition of Scripture to pray without ceasing. Have you prayed and not received an answer yet? Keep praying. Keep praying. Don't give up. Remember, as you... As you read this, as you reread this passage, as you think on this passage, remember here, it's important for us to remember when we read that response of Jesus that Jesus is not being a respecter of persons here. It's a reminder of the redemptive history, the flow of redemptive history writ large. But Jesus had said that whoever comes to him, even then, that he would never cast out. And for those of us who live on this side of the cross, on this side of the resurrection, let us, people of God, rejoice in the knowledge that we, Gentiles, in the scope of redemptive history, that yes, we are the dogs under the table, 
But now God has given those great crumbs to us. We who had no claim on it, but he has given to us glorious crumbs. The glorious crumbs of a full pardon of sin, of full acceptance into the family of God. In fact, Paul says that God has taken the two and made them one. It's not the Jews and the Gentiles. It's the people of God. It's the church. And we have received the glorious crumbs of full pardon, of full salvation. Not cold leftovers, but the bread of life that endures, we've learned, unto eternal life, which the Son of Man gives. One commentator made this interesting observation that the crumb that is given to us is also the pearl of great price that is given to us. Jesus gave that to the Syrophoenician woman in this passage, and he gives it to us as well. And so let us respond by saying, Amen. Father, we thank you that you in your grace have deemed that you would give salvation to all who would call upon your name. That through the unfolding of redemptive history that that which was once given to the Jews has now been given to the Gentiles as well and that is us and we are the beneficiaries of that that you have given to us Christ. We thank you, Lord, for your grace. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be persistent in our prayers, that we would continue to, to hold to you, that we would continue to seek you, continue to seek your grace to us, O oh God. And we'll give you glory for it and thanks for it. In his name, amen.